Hello, I'm William Law, and this is the Arab Digest podcast, and I'm delighted to welcome back Cinzia Bianco, a visiting fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations and a Digest podcast regular. Cinzia, hello. Hello. Now, we're going to do a mini year-ender, and I know that's a big ask given all that's happened in 2021, but I thought the best way to proceed is to throw a series of snappy headlines at you. That sounds good. You're ready. Yes, I'm ready. All right, here we go. Headline number one, 2021, the year of MBZ. Of course, that's the Abu Dhabi Crown Prince and de facto UAE ruler Mohammed bin Zayed. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would say so. Um, he has shown a remarkable capacity to adapt to changing circumstances at the level of international politics and regional geopolitics and to really re-gear his, uh, his country's foreign policy and regional policy to adapt to those changes, to face the different constraints triggered by the COVID-19 pandemic and everything that came with it. I mean, he's, uh, he's completely uh, rebooted um, the uh, approach that the UAE has had in its foreign policy from a very assertive regional policy to a more conciliatory uh, diplomacy first approach that has uh, even, you know, included a few daring uh, examples, uh, such as the attempt to establish a dialogue with Iran and with Turkey, Turkey being the most significant uh, rival for the UAE over the past 10 years since the Arab Spring erupted, really. So um, I think, you know, the capacity to basically move from the sphere of hard power to the sphere of soft power, while still seeking um, ambitious objectives, such as regional leadership is quite a, a remarkable uh, example of flexibility and dynamism in, in the foreign policy of the country. And it all really revolves and comes off uh, MBZ himself. Okay. Headline number two, COVID consequences, MENA winners and losers. So this is a good one because COVID, of course, has hit uh, quite hard the Middle East and North Africa. It's actually one of the hardest hit regions in the world, but it has hit differently, very, very differently. So you have situations of countries that have been less ready to cope with the consequences, both in terms of uh, um, the health sector, but also in terms of the financial uh, consequences of the pandemic. And so countries in the Gulf, for example, in the Gulf Cooperation Council, they have had the means to most of the times really come in with a, a quick response to the health crisis, but also to the financial um, grievances and issues that have hit uh, their population, their, their businesses, um, despite the fact that the pandemic has come with a collapse of oil prices, especially in 2020. And then you have other countries that were already on the brink of collapse, such as, for example, Syria or Iran. Iraq or Lebanon that sunk even deeper and they have had um, a very terrible time to cope with uh, the uh, consequences of the pandemic. And then countries that are in conflict, such as Yemen, where it's uh, basically been 
even impossible to quantify the uh, extent of the of the damage, both in terms of uh, you know human lives, but also in terms of uh, uh, what was left of the Yemeni economy and how that has been hit by a global pandemic. And a lot of, uh, for example, instead, what happened in North Africa has really strained the concept of good governance, which is the only concept that rulers, most times autocratic, very autocratic rulers, have been left with to sort of um, retain some sort, some some level of legitimacy vis-a-vis their population, and so. Uh, in a case like Tunisia, for example, the mismanagement of the pandemic has been one excuse used by the president um, Said to um, really upturn the political and institutional order and institute a soft coup, uh, claiming to his population that now he would be more able to confront the pandemic. And in fact, he has benefited from the support of, for example, Gulf countries that have uh, extended a lot of COVID aid in, uh, to, hi- to make him more able to sort of confront and contain the impact of the pandemic. So a very, very different and diversified situation with clear uh, winners, for example, um, uh, wealthier countries in the Gulf and uh, clear uh, losers as well. For example, countries that were already on the brink of collapse and are now really struggling to stay afloat. Okay, then headline number three, the JCPOA two-step. America and Iran, will they, won't they? And what does it all mean for MENA? Um, that's a very complicated one. The assumption was that um, the, with Joe Biden in the White House, the return to the JCPOA, a.k.a. the Iran nuclear deal, would have been much smoother than it actually has been. The actual uh, dialogue and, and engagement with the very hardline uh, administration in Iran has brought about a number of obstacles and challenges for all sides involved in the negotiations of the JCPOA, especially players such as the European Union and to a certain extent also Russia and China, who all want um, the JCPOA back. And uh, therefore, it's really a hard one to predict this one. Um, I think there's still most, uh, it's most actually likely that uh, the US and Iran will come back to the JCPOA in the next year, so in 2022. Uh, but at the same time, it won't look half as good as it was presented by the administration of Joe Biden or by candidate Joe Biden, rather, during his campaign and all the early promises of how that return was going to be smooth and make the deal stronger and longer. I think we can uh, actually say that this looks now unlikely. And that means that the JCPOA should probably no longer be considered a pillar of regional stability or a first step towards regional stability per se. It will have to be complemented by a number of other diplomatic initiatives, probably ad hoc to the conflicts and rivalries they are trying to tackle. And for the Saudis, for the Emiratis and the Israelis, uh, what does it mean? Uh, it definitely means that, I mean, I think in, the, in 2022, we will see uh, three different policies vis-a-vis Iran by Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates and Israel. I think there will still be some tactical coordination at times, but the strategies uh, in the longer term and, uh, you know, 
by and large, the ways that these strategies will be implemented will definitely look different. Right now, uh, both Riyadh, Abu Dhabi and Tel Aviv are uh, working out uh, what a plan B, a so-called plan B could look like if the JCPOA collapses or if it is reinstated as a very weak nuclear-only deal that does not uh, in any way affect the regional uh, um, geopolitical questions. So they're working out their independent autonomous strategy, and we can see, for example, clearly that the UAE is actually looking for some sort of geopolitical balance between engagement and deterrence, including by using their um, connections to Saudi Arabia and to Israel. And then we're looking Saudi Arabia instead, we're seeing Saudi Arabia instead probably more concerned than the other players, than Israel, which thinks they have their own, their own means to um, safeguard and to reinstate a safe level of deterrence. Whereas uh, Saudi, the Saudis are in a more delicate position. And so there's a lot of thinking going on in Riyadh um, as to different formulas where they can still have some basic level of deterrence, but also some level of engagement. And vis-a-vis the UAE, they have been less sure on how that looks like. All right. Headline number four, the great GCC El Ula Pachup. Brothers, again, after that January meeting at the scenic Saudi site? I think that we can safely say 2021 has been, um, from the, the perspective of the GCC, the year to patch up things. And especially in Saudi Arabia, we have seen at the level of the leadership a clear um, interest. And even to a certain level, we can say commitment to seek out possible ways to cooperate with Qatar to um, sort of really dial down the tensions and address the areas where there still is divergence and differences in views, but also at the same time look at very concretely where there is possibility to cooperate. And there's still a level of mistrust, but I would I would rate um, and rank the Saudi Qatari leadership as um, the relationship as the one that is really most uh, promising for 2022. Of course, you know, uh, as soon as that January meeting was over in Al Ula, we could already see that for Bahrain and the UAE, uh, the patch up with Qatar was more difficult, and they had uh, more issues and divergences to go through. But at the same time, we also have seen at the latest GCC summit, again in Saudi Arabia on the 14th of December, that there is still that willingness to see um, to what extent a fall or a more meaningful reconciliation is possible. Um, and that dialogue is ongoing. And I can see that that's you know, a good sign uh, and that it's probably going to Im- improve even further in 2022. All right. Headline number five, an MBS who's image washed, but is he squeaky clean? Definitely MBS's image is not squeaky clean. There has been uh, a lot of... uh, um hype around the idea whether uh, MBS's reputation can be cleaned up at all or is it um, is it uh, an objective for um, some other international partners and players it's a very complex issue um, we have seen some steps and some sort of uh, good efforts on behalf of the Saudi leadership to try and sort of 
not really clean the image, but to make the record a little bit better than it has been. Um, and so, for example, the new initiative by the Saudi crown prince that it's uh, trying to make some serious steps or at least claiming um, the intention of making some serious steps towards a greener world with the Saudi um, and Middle East green initiatives, that's certainly a step in the good direction. Um, as well as, for example, the first edition of the uh, human rights dialogue between the European Union and Saudi Arabia, where the Saudi side has been more, much more willing to discuss issues that, that were really tough and off the table before, such as further improvement to the um, liberalization of women's rights and uh, freedom of religion, and the also availability to discuss, uh, for example, the um, permanent ban on death penalty for minors who committed crimes as minors. So these are all small steps in the right direction. And you know, it's, uh, we can't really rule out that there will be further steps, further good steps uh, in 2022. And that will definitely contribute to um, uh, the, the position of the Saudi crown prince, especially in the West. The visit by Emmanuel Macron in December in Saudi Arabia would not have been possible if uh, the Saudi leadership didn't take some steps to uh, improve the reputation of the crown prince. Headline number six, War and Peace. Not a novel, but what the year has seen in Yemen, Syria, and Libya. I mean, unfortunately, 2021 has seen a lot of nothing in Yemen, Syria, and Libya in terms of good progress on diplomacy and, and, uh, and conflict resolution. Um, so three different cases. Yemen is definitely the, the worst case right now in terms of resolving the, the war and the fighting itself and doing the fighting itself. Because um, we have now one side of the war, which is Saudi Arabia, which has to a certain extent realized that this war has been one big fat failure and they are trying to get out of it. But the other side, the, the Houthi rebels and their supporters in Iran are sort of sensing that opportunity as a way to push further into um, the conflict and sort of strengthen their own position by taking advantage of the Saudi fatigue vis-a-vis -vis the war. So they have, the Houthis have gained control over larger uh, parts of territory, especially in the north towards Marib. And they seem in no way ready to compromise, despite the pushes by the United States Special Envoy, also the United Nations and the European Union. So. All of these international players, which are still giving some of uh, some uh, efforts and some energies to resolving that conflict together with this, with the Saudi side, they're actually not producing a lot of good results because there is no um, no military situation where the Houthis are encouraged to compromise. In Syria, on the other hand, um, we may say that that 2021 has seen probably one step closer to the end of the conflict. That doesn't mean, of course, that the conflict is ending in a way that could please the international community, but also in a way that bears a lot of uh, good, uh, positive news for Syrian people 
in 2022. But regardless of that, there is a growing realization in different capitals uh, internationally, but most importantly, regionally, the Bashar al-Assad has won the war. And there is an ongoing, very slow, very small steps, very incremental process to accept that, which has definitely made, you know, sort of seen a lot of uh, uh, meetings at a high level between Bashar al-Assad's people uh, and decision makers and their counterparts in the UAE. Some meetings at the level of security establishment with um, uh, the, the neighbors, Jordan, Egypt, Iraq even, and with uh, Saudi Arabia even. So, Uh, There's going to be another Arab League meeting and uh, at that occasion it's most probable that they will raise the issue of Bashar al-Assad's victory and possible normalization of relations with him. And finally, Libya. Libya has been one big disappointment because definitely the fighting has uh, calmed down, but there were supposed to be elections uh, on the 24th of December and it looks, and these elections have been now delayed. Um, But the level of um, controversies and opposing political interests is still so high in the country and the security situation is so precarious that it could erupt back, back into fighting at any moment. Headline number seven. Bye bye, Bibi. Hello, Bennett. Does a new Israeli prime minister make a difference in MENA? Yes and no. Um, a new Israeli prime minister makes a difference just because of how Netanyahu himself was an extremely controversial figure in, in a bunch of different dossiers, not only, I mean, most notably with uh, in the conflict with the Palestinians, but also regionally over the course of decades that he has been the leader of Israel. He has annoyed and um, really alienated a few of his other regional counterparts. Internationally, his uh, also figure is uh, has been controversial. So, and and of course, you know the politics, the personal counts in the politics. Um, you can't really separate those entirely. However, um, Naftali Bennett is no stranger to controversial statements has also been a very toxic figure, um, especially on the discourse vis-a-vis the conflict with the Palestinians. And so, and, and most importantly, has not changed the overall direction of Israeli regional and domestic politics. And so we are still seeing um, the sort of same or very similar behavior for the, on, in the country's regional and international policies. Headline number eight. Lira languishes and necessary alliances. Just what sort of a year has Turkey's president Erdogan had? Turkey's president Erdogan has had a terrible year. He has, I think, had to realize that many of the choices he made um, regionally as well as internationally have hurt um, Turkey's international standing and therefore also its economy. I mean, definitely he has uh, uh, had to navigate very troubled times with the COVID-19 pandemic, as everybody else has, but um, his uh, tendency to alienate uh, all-time international partners and regional friends to bolster his own image in domestic politics has really come back to bite him. And he has now had to uh, reverse on, on that course by accepting the outreach 
that has come from the UAE after having spent a very long time um, criticizing the leadership and the country for all of the choices that they made domestically and regionally. So having to backtrack on uh, on these issues is is definitely must have not been easy. But at the same time, it was necessary. And probably in 2022, we we, we might see a lot more compromises um, in that direction with other regional players and other international players, because the same could be said um, about the U.S.-Turkey relationship. Erdogan has been uh, really instrumentalizing that relationship for his own benefit and to appear as a strong man. But in fact, that has uh, uh, really backfired um, and has alienated uh, also U.S. investors, for example, not only U.S. politicians. Um, the involvement in kinetic operations over the border with uh, Syria and also uh, to a lesser extent in Iraq has also drained the country's resources and the attention of decision makers um, taking it away from tackling domestic issues and economic problems, such as the ones confronted today by by, uh, Turkey with uh, that really volatile um, currency situation. So I think it has been a very, very bad year and probably 2022 will continue to be a year of reckoning with all of that. Headline number nine. The long shadow of Sultan Qaboos. Has Oman's new Sultan Haitham escaped it? Um, Oman Sultan Haitham has really um, nav- had to navigate a lot of political and economic challenges. Of course, when he was enthroned at the death of Sultan Qaboos, who was considered the father of the nation, he had to uh, sort of strengthen his own legitimacy and image and position with with the Omanis. And I would say that overall, he has succeeded. So the year 2021 has been quite uh, 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 ripe with political and economic challenges for Oman and for its uh, Sultan Haitham. There have been some protests in May 2021 because of economic uh, grievances and and, and disappointments uh, and challenges that have been, of course, magnified by the COVID-19 pandemic combined with the the, uh, crash of the collapse of oil prices. However, overall, I think by uh, December 2021, we can say that uh, the Omani leadership, the Sultan and, and, and the people around him have been able to navigate that discontent and have been able to maintain that level of trust, that necessary level of trust between government and people. So that has been, you know, sort of Politically, uh, 2021 has been a year where the the Sultan has uh, solidified his own position vis-a-vis the people. Economically, uh, you know, of course, challenges remain. Oman has is confronting macroeconomic and financial struggles, um, and has been for years now. Ha- at the same time, uh, Sultan Haitham has also been active in trying to address these challenges by, for example, patching things up with Saudi Arabia and making it clear that it was uh, very important for Oman to uh, combine that sort of uh, smoother political relationship with concrete prospects of Saudi investments and engagement in um, economic integration between the two countries. 
And the, the sort of deals that have already been signed are very promising and they have the potential to really tackle the challenges that Oman is facing, at least in part. So I think, you know, it's a positive scorecard for 2021 for the, uh, for the Omani Sultan. Headline number 10, the pharaonic Sisi. Repression, repression, repression. I mean, Egypt's president, Sisi, is really taking that the theory of, uh, of authoritarian stability to, a next, to the next level. He's really banking it all on the fact that repression, especially in difficult times uh, such as that, uh, that uh, the ones that Egypt has, uh, has been going through, uh, can alone deter people from um, revolting or from voicing their concerns or from protesting their grievances. And I mean, so far it has worked. Uh, we have to say that, you know, the, um, the fact that uh, the strongest opposition force, which was in a way affiliated or close to the Muslim Brotherhood, the fact that that force is being repressed to the extent that it can really no longer organize effectively inside the country and that it has been on the losing end of the political um, dynamics in other North African countries, for example, the elections in Morocco or the soft coup in Tunisia, seem to be a sort of a, um, a satisfying development that gives CC a stronger level of, of uh, safety. However, that, you know, the, the, the history of the Middle East and North Africa has disproved the, uh, the extent to which uh, authoritarian stability and repression alone can be effective for a, a longer period of time. So I think it's incredibly dangerous to think that repression alone can be sufficient uh, if the Egyptian government doesn't really start to deliver on the many economic promises that they have made to the population. And to a certain uh, extent, also uh, some um, greater uh, level of civil rights. I think we're uh, definitely in for another very bumpy uh, year ahead in 2022. Headline number 11, coup de gras. Burhan in Sudan, Kais Saeed in Tunisia. So is democracy dead in MENA? I think it's too early to say that democracy is dead in the Middle East and North Africa. Um, the road to democracy um, has never been smooth anywhere uh, in, in any region and at any point in history. Um, so it's... Uh, 10 years after the Arab Spring, we may think it's a lot, but actually, you know, from a historical perspective, it's a quite a short time. And so we definitely, we shouldn't declare democracy dead yet. Um, we should be always, uh, you know, vigilant and open to potential new developments, possibly already next year in 2022. I think it's indicative that even in a place like Tunisia, where uh, President Sayed has, in fact, executed the soft coup, he himself has felt the need to still at least give some assurances 
uh, at least rhetorically, to the people and to international players, that some level of political freedom um, should be guaranteed um, and civil rights in a certain way. You can't really turn back the clock and go back to uh, the level of repression and lack of freedom that was uh, in Tunisia before 2011. So too early to say, and uh, possibly another year in 2022 of uh, gradual transformation. Sudan, I mean, the situation there very similarly, um, you still definitely you have very powerful forces trying to repress uh, the popular movement and whatever you know movement there is to try there is there to fight for political and civil rights but for example there is also uh, another element in Sudan which is the exiled and expat population population that lives abroad for example in the United Kingdom in other places in Europe and they also have been quite vocal uh, about uh, what their hopes and freedoms are for freedom are for the future especially at the level of the Sudanese youth so i think even there we can't declare uh, the movement for democracy dead yet. One more headline. Trouble in the Levant, Lebanon and Jordan. Absolutely. Two, I mean, two different cases, but also two very uh, delicate ones. So Jordan has been, you know, it's one of those uh, very remarkable cases uh, in the Middle East and North Africa where a country seems to survive and weather even the strongest pressures. And Jordan, um, everybody knows, has definitely been under very, very strong pressures. In 2021, the COVID-19 pandemic combined with the economic uh, challenges, was also, you know, added on top of a very difficult situation where Jordan had to cope with, for example, very large numbers of, of Syrian refugees. And also, you know, uh, the sort of uh, um, some, some movement politically inside the royal court as well, that uh, at a couple of points in time, uh, also including over the course of the past year, has uh, uh, challenged the authority of the king and the stability of the system at large. However, Jordan appears to have make it uh, yet again uh, in the sense that they have been able to cope with that and maintain that level of stability that yes it's precarious but it's in, but it's still you know um, in a in a much better place than for example in Iraq or in Lebanon and uh, so Lebanon instead is is really worst case scenario that you know Jordan could have even found itself find itself into because you you on top of the challenges that all we have described for Jordan uh, Syrian refugees the pandemic and the collapse they've also had a stagnating political crisis where the people um, have suffered from a complete lack of governance the collapse of the qual of the, of the standard of life that they had been accustomed to and confronting immense challenges from you know electricity uh, shortages to even the shortages of uh, basic, basic goods and sometimes food. And so um, th together with that, the still coping with the trauma from, from the explosion of the port uh, in Beirut and with uh, some uh, level of asymmetric and guerrilla type level of 
violence in the streets at some points. So the situation there is, is rather much uh, more desperate. And the attempts of the uh, international and regional partners and players to sort of stabilize Lebanon fall very much short of expectations. So there's, of course, the level of uh, um, the regional geopolitics lenses on the, on the Lebanese political crisis, where Iran doesn't want to um, give away any level of control over Hezbollah and therefore over the country. And so it's, uh, it is op- opposing every attempt to sort of uh, stem the uh, toxic influence of Hezbollah over the country. Then there's Saudi Arabia, which is uh, using Lebanon to play games with Iran and refusing to um, step up and support the country um, towards stability just because uh, they they think it will be more effective and efficient in trying to weaken Iranian the Iranian regional position. And then there are the international players, which have been at best distracted and at worst quite ineffective coming in with uh, sometimes ideas that don't really work with the local context, such as France, or sometimes coming in with uh, insufficient level of commitment and attention, such as the United States. So there, there is really um, a difficult, difficult year ahead for 2022 for Lebanon. All right. Now, finally, Jinzia, here's the big one. Your predictions for 2022. Well, this is a very good one. Um, I would say that for 2022, at the end of 2022, we might find ourselves discussing the JCPOA being back and alive and kicking. Um, We might discuss a proper alignment between Turkey and all of the GCC countries, in particular Turkey and Saudi Arabia even to the extent of some uh, practical coordination on regional theaters such as Syria or Iraq. And finally, um, another important one would be that the level of confrontation of uh, rivalry with, uh, uh, between the Arab states and, and Iran could uh, uh, result in some uh, unfortunately, uh, difficult, more difficult situations in uh, regional countries such as Lebanon or Yemen. So I think, you know, very little might have changed uh, in these countries and in these places in the next 12 months. But there are good news on, in terms of uh, de-escalation between Turkey and the GCC countries. All right. Well, we'll come back in a year's time and see and see how you've done. Chinja, thank you. Thank you so much. And I, and I wish you and yours a very Merry Christmas. Thank you very much, Bill. And Merry Christmas to you, Sue, too. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was the European Council on Foreign Relations visiting fellow Chinzia Bianco. Now, I know this was our year ender, but the podcast isn't quite finished for 2021. Next week on New Year's Eve, It is Conservative MP Crispin Blunt on his road to secure justice through the courts for Palestinians. In addition to the podcasts, which I'm pleased to say have a rapidly growing global audience, Arab Digest publishes a newsletter featuring some of the very best MENA analysts. If you'd like a free trial to the Arab Digest newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering a special rates to students, academics, and retirees.
and subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. To all our listeners, a big thank you and we wish you the very best in the holiday season. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.